So this week, we're having a look at faith. Now, I'm going to come at this at a bit of an angle. So bear with me. I do intend to get there, but I'm taking the long way round. Okay? So I'm actually going to start off with philosophy. Now, it's a fairly... um, obscure, uh, disregarded um, uh, profession. A couple of years ago, the Philosopher's Society had an advertising campaign where they were saying that philosophy brings happiness. I'm thinking, really? (laughs) It made me laugh, so I suppose that's halfway to happiness. But unless you actually are studying philosophy at uni, you probably don't think about it all that much. However, thinking, if you, a lot of people think, even if they don't call it philosophy. And the philosophers admittedly are not too good at coming up with answers. But what they are brilliant at is coming up with questions. And if we look at the basic questions that philosophers ask, they are spot on. They are exactly right. So what are the basic questions that they asked, that philosophers ask? And the first of them is existence. Why am I who I am? Why am I not somebody else? How how is it that I can communicate with other people? Where did I come from? They're all good questions because all the other things of daily life sort of flow back to that. Where do we come from? Is there any meaning? Is there any significance in life? And a related question, that that usually the second one they is the the moral question. And they look around and say, well, there's good and there's evil. Or is there? Is there really something? Is there a real good that we can measure things against? If there's a good and evil, why is there a good and evil? What can we do about it? They are very good questions. And I guess the next question that they come up with is, how do we know things? So they're the big questions that the philosophers had looked at in the past. And they got the questions right, um, but actually when it comes down to it, when you want the answers, you have to go to the Bible. Because basically there are only two possibilities. There are a lot of details, a lot of variation in the details. But actually there's an A and a B. Either everything is irrational and there is no meaning or there is some rational, logical answer that can be communicated. And in the end, it comes down to one or the other. 
So what about, what about our being, our existence? Where do we come from? There's two, maybe three, choices. There's one that says that everything came out of absolutely nothing. No energy, no mass, no God, absolutely nothing. That one, no one actually believes. But they think, well, that's got to be a possibility. But the second choice is this, that we come out of something impersonal. And so there's, it might be energy, it might be mass. But basically, it's the Big Bang Theory, and you take it from the start, and everything explodes, and all the atoms go flinging off. And they bump into each other, sort of like bowl, um, bowling balls, billiard balls on a billiard table. And the atoms bump into each other and they just follow the laws of physics until they, because there's lots of them, they form planets, they form people. And that's quite... That's a theory that's quite um, widely spread. And if you follow that to its conclusion, then nothing makes sense. If everything we think is just um, the result of the way the atoms bounce together, then there's no such thing as truth. It's just the way things are, the way things bump together. And if that's the case, if there's no truth, we've got no reason to think that we're made of atoms, have we? And so it all collapses. Alternatively, there could be someone behind creation, someone personal. Hebrews 11, verse 3. By faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command, that what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. So if there is a person, if there is God at the back of creation, then it makes sense that we are persons. If it's just random atoms, we would never be persons. We would never be individuals acting of our own volition. But what the Bible says is that before creation, there was God. God, three in one. The Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. talking amongst himself, relating, loving, before creation. And so when we see that, we can understand how we are living in a world of persons. 
of individuals because the creator is personal. Plato tried to work it all out when he was working out a moral code and he was thinking, what is the, the universal standard that we, that we measure things against? And he couldn't do it because the gods that he had weren't big enough. They were just like um, uh, TV stars. They were a bit more glamorous, a bit more powerful than normal people. But really, when it came to the crunch, they weren't big enough. And so his, his whole system broke down because there wasn't an infinite God at the back of it. We move on to the, the moral code. Why is there good and why is there evil? You know, um, some of the philosophers have said, well, if there is a God, he must be evil. The most recent one of that is uh, Christopher Hitchens, who died recently. And there is some logic to what they say because they don't have all the information. You see, if you look at people, we're a mixture of good and evil. We've got the wonderful self-sacrifice of the firefighters on one side. And you've got the arsonists who are setting them on fire in the first place. They, they reckon 85% of them. You have the great generosity of the people giving um, to help the victims. And you have the looters who are breaking into the empty houses and stealing things. If you look at humanity, there, we are that mixture of good and evil. And the thinking of Christopher Hitchens and Camus and other philosophers is if we come from God and we are good and evil, then God must be good and evil. He must have evil in him. But what the Bible explains is that no, God is good. And when he created us, when he started humanity on our journey, we were good. Humanity was perfect when God gave us our freedom. But then we turned around and decided we'd do things our way. We rebelled against God's right to rule our lives. And that's, what's, that's what sin is. And so then evil came in. And then it flowed through. So you can understand why the philosophers were thinking that. But you see, they're not working with all the information. No matter how well you think, how good your processes are, if you don't have all the information, you're going to come up with the wrong answer. Fortunately, God is a communicating God. 
He's not only there, but he speaks. If God created the universe and never told us about himself, we'd have no hope of working out what was going on. Nothing would ever make sense. But fortunately, God hasn't gone and moved to some uh, asteroid at the other side of the universe and said, ha-ha, they'll never find me here. No, because he's, he likes to communicate. He likes to be in a relationship. He likes to explain what life's about, what he's about, what he is like. Hebrews 11, verse 6. It is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. That he rewards those who sincerely seek him. God is not hiding. If you're sincerely looking to know God, that's great because he will let you know him. He explains what he is like. And more than that, he deals with the problem of evil. It would have been quite easy for him to say, oh, this has all worked out very badly. I can't be bothered with these people, people. But no, he didn't. He said, ah, I want to fix that. And so the people, and this is written to the Hebrews, the people in the Old Testament, they knew that they were evil and they knew that God was good and they knew that it was a barrier, that the relationship we should have with each other, with, with God, had broken down because God's goodness couldn't put up with our evil and our evil... It's challenged just too much by goodness. And so there was that barrier. The symbolic representation in the temple was this huge curtain, huge, thick, could not be seen through. And God was on one side and we were on the other and you couldn't get through it. There was the high priest went once a year to make an apology, to make a sacrifice. But when Jesus came, he found a way through that curtain. He took the punishment for our sinfulness upon himself. And the curtain was torn in the temple from top to bottom. He said, okay, the way is open now. Come on in. That relationship that we should have had, that relationship which we had in the Garden of Eden, was restored. The opportunity to communicate with God, to share our lives with him, that was re-established, that was opened up for us.
But perhaps you're wondering, am I getting off the track talking about faith as a relationship? A relationship with God. I mean, surely faith is believing to certain facts about God. Surely faith is trusting that God has saved us and will do good by us. Well, yes, that's true. I'm not arguing with that. That's faith. I'm just taking a gemstone and turning it on an angle so you can see a different facet. Because to trust God, we have to know him. We have to be in that relationship. There's a verse, how will they have faith in him of whom they haven't heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? We have to know God if we're going to trust him. And we do that already with people. I certainly hope so. I certainly hope you don't trust everyone who comes through the door and tries to sell you something and you've never seen them before because I have great fears for your safety and for your bank account if that's the case. The more we know someone, the more we understand how much we can trust them. And so we come to... Can I... Okay, we've got living faith up there. We come to faith as a relationship with God. What's the, uh, what's the next thing there? Can I have the next slide, please? Okay. We tend to think of our faith on a personal level, how we're growing how, how, how much we're learning about spiritual things. But yet in the New Testament, it often talks about the faith of a body of believers, the faith of a church. So where does, where does the corporate come in? I mean, surely if we have a personal relationship with God, that's enough. But we've seen previously, we saw earlier, that, that God is a relational God. And he wants us to be part of a body. That's what he calls the church, his body. He wants us to relate with each other. And our faith grows when we're together in a way that it doesn't when we're by ourselves. Jesus said, when two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst so there's something different when there's more than one of us than the way our faith grows just by ourselves. It's God's way of growing, growing our faith. So how would that be? Well, partly, of course, it's, it's listening to the sermon and someone is like me is up the front sharing you with you about what they've learnt about God. 
Later in the year, Kerry's going to lead us in a series on the song, Song of Solomon or Song of Songs? What do you call it? Song of Songs. And that's all about personal intimacy with God. I hope that's what you're saying. Yes? Okay. When we listen to the sermons, we listen to what God has said and we learn things that we wouldn't have learned by ourselves. But it's not just the sermon. By being a part of a body, each one of us can encourage other people's faith. You might not be an upfront person, you might be shy, you might not be good with words, but God will still use you to build up others' faith because you can share what you have learned about God, what you have experienced, how he has worked in your life in, a, in tough times to hold you up. And when one of us is feeling down or doesn't have a strong faith, being part of the body lifts us up. Our faith grows when we are part of a faithful church. And it's an ongoing thing. It needs to be growing. Can we have the Bible verse for that? Dear brothers and sisters, we can't help but thank God for you because your faith is flourishing and your love for one another is growing. Faith isn't a static thing. It's a living thing. When we get married, we get to know someone, but hopefully 30 years later, things have grown. It would be a terrible thing if you didn't know any more about your, your husband or wife than you did 30 years previously. And it's not just a quiz thing, you're not getting facts, but just going through life together. Meeting each day as it comes, seeing how things work out. Our relationships are meant to grow. And our relationship with God is meant to grow. Our faith. As we know more, we understand what he does for us. As we live in faith. We become the people that we're meant to be that we were created for, people in relationships, in relationship with God. They're the fundamental philosophical questions that we were asking before, but the answer is this. The old theologians used to say this, the chief end of man is to know God and to enjoy him forever. So the chief end, the main thing, the most important thing is our relationship with God. 
Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will follow on. The first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. That's the primary thing. I was reading a book a couple of years ago. It was a terrible book. But it was entitled, You Can Be Something or Other and Christian. And I thought, that's not a good start. And worse came when I read the first chapter. He particularly said, I particularly put it in that order because he thought the something or other was was most important. And Christ was an optional extra. But Christ is never an optional extra. Christ is at the centre of things. Christ is at the centre of the universe. And if he's, if we are not putting him, acknowledging him as the centre of the universe, then everything falls apart. We're out of step with reality. We are meant to be in relationship with him. What else does faith do? It defeats Satan. We have the uh, verse from Ephesians. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Quite apart from the, um, the normal problems that come to everyone and that we bring upon ourselves, we do have an enemy. We do have a personal enemy trying to bring us down. What defeats him? What protects us from that? Our relationship with God. If that is growing and that we understand that his heart is towards us, that he has paid the ultimate price to reconcile himself will reconcile us with himself and then always look out for us that protects us our faith is observable it can be seen if a congregation is growing in its relationship with God, if they are understanding him more and more and and spending time with him, walking with him every day, living in faith every day, then people will notice. They will see. And the glory will go to God. It won't go to us. It will go to God. And people will say, oh, there's something going on here. Here are people who know the answers. We often um, wonder how our children will have faith or our grandchildren, those in society around us, how will they have faith? We need to have two things. We need to have adequate answers and we need to have consistent living. 
to have the adequate answers, we have to have an ear to listen to what God says. We have to keep coming to him in faith and learning, getting to know him better and better. And we have to live lives that are consistent with that relationship. You can't have a relationship where people are pulling in two different directions. And while being good doesn't get us to heaven, being forgiven and being in a relationship with, with Jesus means that we want to be more like him. We want our lives to be brought in accordance with the way his nature is. And when we've got those two things, the understanding and the lifestyle, then people will have faith because it's real. And they will want that relationship themselves. We, uh, when we were looking last week, we looked at four passages where uh, Paul was writing to the churches and he said, faith, hope and love. And that was the Ephesians and the Colossians and two letters to the Thessalonians. There's another one here today for, to the Hebrews. So that wasn't just the, the people in Israel, but the Jewish people throughout the Roman uh, Empire and in places where there are a lot of them, they formed Jewish congregations. And so this letter went out to them and explained how Christ fits in or fulfills everything they already knew from the Old Testament. In chapter 10, verses 22 to 25, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Let us, told Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works, and let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. So we see then the, the faith, the hope and the love, the three things again. Let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him, fully trusting him, that's the faith. That's the relationship with him. For the Jewish people, the idea of getting close to God was terrifying because they understood that he was good and they weren't. They thought, I can't go to that. I'd be like jumping into a furnace. <laughs> It'd be a terrible thing. And so God was always at a distance. But now it's not. Now we're invited in. God wants to be in a relationship with us. He wants to communicate with us, to tell us what he is about. 
and he wants to hear from us too. When we sing, when we pray, God loves that. He really does. He says it in, um, in Revelation, and it's got a picture there of God in heaven, and he's, um, the prayers of his people are coming up. It's like perfume. Wonderful. He really does enjoy being related to us. And that relationship grows when we come to him in prayer, when we lift our voices in song. Hebrews, this is the last passage, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Chapter 11, it goes through a list of people in the Old Testament and how they had faith, how their relationship of God played out in their daily life. And extraordinary things happened when they were living their life in faith. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honour before God's throne. And so the writer is using a, uh, an illustration from a race. You don't race in hobnail boots and a jumper, you strip right down. You make sure the laces are done up so you don't trip over them. Life is a race. Get rid of anything that's going to hold you back. Sinfulness will hold you back. So you need to put that off and you need to look where you're going you need to focus on Jesus. He's our coach, our trainer. He's the one who shows us how it's done and encourages us. He starts us off in the race and he makes sure we finish. This year, this year as a church, may we grow in faith. May our relationship with Jesus grow. That opportunity is there. We are forgiven and he asks us to share his life. He asks us to live each day with him at the centre of our life because that's the way the universe is made. God is not only infinite, but he's personal. He communicates. He teaches. He wants to relate to us. So together, let us grow 
Let us listen. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Amen. Now we're going to sing. We're going to sing a song called Come Thou Font.